Welcome to the Audit Room, the number one podcast where you can share your audit experiences, ask questions, and get expert coaching and feedback. Episodes are recorded live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Chicago Time, 12 noon New York, and 6 p.m. Berlin. So be sure to check the show notes to join our next meeting and get all your auditing questions answered. Now, here are our hosts, Trent Russell and Tracy Marquardt. This podcast is brought to you by Green Skies Analytics, the services firm that helps auditors leapfrog up the analytics maturity model. Their approach for launching audit analytics programs with a series of proven quick win analytics will guarantee the results worthy of the analytics hype. Whether your audit team needs a data strategy, methodology, governance, literacy, or anything else related to audit and analytics, visit greenskiesanalytics.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Quality Assurance Communication. If you're an internal auditor who wants to take your own or your team's communication skills and audit results to the next level, who wants to create more for yourself, your team, and your organization, no matter where you work around the globe, then check out Quality Assurance Communication at qacommunication.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Trent Russell, and this is The Audit Room. You can join us live to ask your questions every Tuesday at 11 Central Standard Time by connecting with Tracy Marquardt and myself on LinkedIn. Again, I'm your co-host and moderator, Trent Russell. I'm the founder of Green Skies Analytics, where we make analytics actually work for internal auditors. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Tracy Marquardt. Hey there. Thanks, Trent. I'm Tracy Marquardt. All things audit communication, from audit reports to influencing to presenting your results and beyond. And I'm super happy today because we have Daniel Clark with us. We're going to call you Dan. I hope that's okay. That's and- perfect. Okay, super. And our topic is lessons from the recent banking crises. So we've had, you know, more than one bank issue recently. Um, Dan is a risk and audit strategist, author, keynote speaker, trainer, consultant, and principal at D. Clark Risk Advisory Services. He has a long and distinguished career in the financial services industry. He's held many, many roles in audit leadership, including at Washington Trust Bank, GE Capital, Sterling Savings Bank, Citigroup. So I think it's a relevant topic um, for you today. Um, Dan has written numerous articles on LinkedIn currently as the audit philosopher, which I've been reading those articles and I absolutely love them. So check those out if you um, haven't seen them. And Dan is also the author of Dare to be Different, an auditor's personal guide to excellence. This was published in 2016. It's available on amazon.com. Trent's going to put up a link for us. And in this book, Dan shares his personal perspective on what it takes to be an excellent auditor. And mine is on order. I can't wait to have it. Welcome to the audit room, Dan. Thank you very much. And I I guess we're out of time now since we (laughs) have so much stuff that we talked about. But it's a pleasure to be here. And just for everybody, you know, these two people here, as well as several others, but I, I love these guys. They do so much to help the auditors get better at what we do. So I applaud you both, and it's a pleasure for me to be here. Thank you very much. And to brag on Dan just a little bit more, I was talking to an audit analytics person, actually compliance analytics at the the huge uh, organization, and we're just talking conferences and speakers, et cetera. And I said, who do you like, like as an audit or compliance analyst person, like who do you like to hear from? And he said, Dan Clark. And I went, what? Like, I thought it was going to be somebody like very technical, someone deep into analytics and uh, said Dan. And even I think just with the um, what we've heard so far briefly from Dan, I think you can see why fantastic personality. So thanks a ton, Dan, for coming to join us. 
Um, let's get to it though. So with everything that's been going on, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, and even like we look back even a little bit further, Wells Fargo, from those, there's been a ton of uh, eyeballs, analysis, and commentary around what's going on there. So like as auditors and risk managers, are there specific messages we should be paying kind of the most attention to relative to those? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this, I think the conversation is going to surprise a lot of people today. Because when you listen to lessons learned, you want to have a, a laundry list of this is what we learned, blah, 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 blah. I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the question I would ask all of us as auditors and risk managers is what, what is actually a lesson learned? Because as you mentioned, Trent, uh, we had Silicon Valley Bank, we had Wells Fargo's one and two. And a couple of years ago was Wells Fargo three. So they've had three events in the last five years. Credit Suisse has had two events in the last couple of years. And in the last two decades, they've had four or five and they've all been related. And so one could sit and the cynical ones of us could sit there and say, well, gee, there's an opportunity for a lot of lessons learned. So why didn't we learn the lessons? And so I started thinking about that. I said, well, that's a little cynical. Maybe there's something that we as auditors should be doing differently. And that's what got me to my personal epiphany of what is a lesson learned. And I actually changed my definition. My definition today is that a lesson learned is something that we capture from an event that changes our behavior. That's what a lesson learned is because we now evidence that we learned something because we're doing something personally different. Now, as I look back at all of the stuff that's happened in the last few years with uh, all, of, all the things we've mentioned, what I noticed was that auditors did a couple things to evidence their lessons learned. Uh, after the pandemic, risk assessments across the board included a pandemic-related risk. Okay, that, So obviously, that was the lesson learned. After Wells Fargo, examinations were... The audit plan was changed to include customer account management, incentive plans. The pandemic plans were audit plans were changed to include supply chain. They were also changed to include third-party service providers. Those are not behavioral changes. Those are just reactions to what events happen. So I started thinking, what are the opportunities for us as auditors to learn from these events to actually change what we did? I came up with a list of five or six, maybe seven. I'm only going to talk about two or mention two today because we don't have hours to talk about this. And there's some people on here who are much brighter than I am about this stuff. I'd love to have a panel discussion and just have all of us share our opinions. But two things I think auditors should take away from the events and take a look at themselves. One, do we observe as auditors or do we see? And the other one is, are we really good at analysis? And the conclusions I got to on both of those is we do not observe very well as auditors and we do not analyze as well as we could. And if you'd like, I could talk a little bit about yeah, each of those. When you say observe and see, I, I, what's yeah. the difference there? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a great question. Uh, seeing is what I'm doing right now because I see all of the you guys on the script. Observing is seeing with thought. Or, and I'll give you an example. When you go to the hospital, if they say they're going to keep you in the hospital overnight for observation, what is it that they do? Well, they take you in and they don't walk by the room and see that you're there. They hook you up to machines. They have nurses come in and check 
on you periodically. The doctor will come in and check on you. So there's a whole process of observation. So I would say that let's transfer that to what we do. We are really busy. We go audit to audit, process to process, filling out work papers, doing interviews, et cetera. Do we have time to observe? I would say we don't take time to observe. And so to have looking with thought, looking with analysis, that's observation. And that's what can really tell us things that are happening. For example, with the uh, Wells Fargo incidences, we read a lot. We listen to things. We've seen articles. We listen to people talking about it. If we expand our vision just a wee bit and we include taking time to listen to the Senate subcommittees, talking and inquiring and questioning Wells Fargo leadership, we can observe a lot more that could actually change our behavior ourselves of how we go about doing an audit. That's what observation is about. And then you said- Interesting. Go ahead, Tracy. No, no, I just thought it was interesting. You know, know, working with communication, a lot of people would think the words see and observe have the same meaning, right? So it's like listen and hear. So excellent, thank you. And when you're saying good at analyze, do you mean, and this is coming from my analytics perspective, analyzing with data or is it is it that specific or is it more broad? It's both. Let me give you an example of a true life experience and I'll tell you what I mean. And I, I, I think we analyze to either confirm information or we analyze to discover something and auditors typically confirm more than discover. Let me give you a real live example of how that happens. Uh, several years ago, I had an opportunity to do, lead a review of a bank, a consumer bank outside the United States. This was a consumer bank historically, but very, very good. It was a credit card driven uh, bank, a couple hundred million dollars worth of credit card in the portfolio. But their delinquency numbers and all indicators were very conservative, very positive. They were about 100 basis points below the industry average in delinquency on the credit card historically. Well, as we prepared for our exam, we noticed that the last two years, the credit card delinquency had gone up by 200, 250 basis points. So well, being the dutiful auditors we are, we listed that as one of the things we want, to, we want to talk about. So we get on the plane, we fly down there, we have our opening meeting, we sit around the table, and the first thing on the list is, hey, we noticed that your delinquency has increased. And we were wondering why. And management, without a doubt, they stood up and they said, you know what? We knew you were going to say that. Let me explain it to you. And they explained a wonderful reason why delinquency in credit card consumers in the credit card portfolio had increased. What they had done is they had looked at their portfolio. They thought they were too conservative. They wanted to make more money, have more market shares. So they went down the credit ladder from an AB credit to a C credit. And they decided to book those because they could afford to. And then they showed us the the vintage analysis. And for those of you who don't know what vintage analysis is, it is vintage is just like wine. Certain years of wine are better than other years. Certain years of booking loans to your portfolio perform differently than other years. So you analyze your portfolio on vintage by year or by quarter that it booked onto the books. So they looked at it and they showed us that the new bookings with that aggressive credit perspective were actually 150 to 200 basis points higher across the vintages than the previous stuff. And we said, great. They knew that they knew what they were talking about. We went down and did some more, got back to our little meeting. We left that meeting, went to our meeting as auditors. And I gave the assignment to one of my team members. I'd say, okay, go look at this and make sure you're comfortable with what, what we have been told. The next day comes in, 
He says, I'm comfortable. Let me show you what we did. And he went through everything, said, here's the vintage. Here's the two. They show exactly what they say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wonderful. Unfortunately for him and unfortunately for the bank, I grew up in credit risk management. So I looked at the vintage analysis and I started going through it. And I had been out of it for a while and I wasn't sure of what I was seeing. So I called a friend. I said, Mary, would you do me a favor? I'm going to send you a report. I'm not going to tell you what I'm concerned about, but you tell me if you have any concerns. This is the general scenario. Conservative portfolio, all of a sudden, it's much higher in delinquency than it's been in the past. They're saying it's all due to recent vintage. She looked at it. Day and a half later, I get a phone call. Dan, I don't know what you're thinking, but you're probably right. Okay. Here's what I saw. And what she saw was that, yes, that vintage, the new vintages were performing worse than the rest of the portfolio, except for a portfolio that was booked four years earlier, which represented the preponderance of the volume of the portfolio itself. And that delinquent, that portfolio in the most recent two years had grown significantly in delinquency itself. And that was what was driving the delinquency of the portfolio, not the new generated volumes. So we, we talked about that and that's kind of what I had. That's the feeling I had as well. So we sat down, I brought my guy in. It was a great teaching moment. I said, you looked at the right stuff, but I think you looked at it because you wanted to confirm what they told us versus looking at it objectively to see if there's something else to discover. Yeah. Once we discovered it, he and I went to the chief credit officer and the president of the bank and said, we don't want to tell you you're wrong, but you're wrong. Yeah. Your new delinquency is doing what you thought it would be doing, but it's not driving the delinquency in your portfolio. What happened for you, to the portfolio four years ago? And we started exploring that and we found out what they were doing with that portfolio that caused the delinquency and our recommendation became better, et cetera. What that taught me was, is we have to look beyond what people tell us and we have to analyze to discover, not analyze to detect or to uh, confirm that which we know or what we think we know. And in all the years I was C a CAE, I and even myself, I recognize that I usually start with trying to confirm what people have told me and I don't take that next step. And that's why I say we need to analyze better. We need to get better at analysis so that we can take advantage of those kind of opportunities and provide value to an organization and point out when they are in error, why it is an error and how to do it. And there were some other lessons we learned too from my epiphany moment, but those are the two that really jumped out at me. I'd jump in there because I was in a credit card industry for eight years, uh, a lifetime ago. Um, and actually at a company that, or a bank that was purchased by a Wells Fargo, taken over by Wells Fargo back in the uh -huh. day. You may rem remember household finance yep. back in the day. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I, so I, I love that story and, you know, talking about the recent, you know, fake crises and failures that we've had, what's the role of corporate culture? Because these are credit cards are banking institutions as well. So what, what role does culture have to play in all of this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and you know, the IA has been pushing kind of auditors should be doing culture audits. For all of you auditors out there, I'm not a culture audit person. Okay. And, I, and I'm going to tell you why. I, I think it's culture is a big deal. 
Uh, the reason I don't think auditors are very good at auditing culture and providing input is because, uh, for a lot of reasons, but but one of them is, to answer your question, Tracy, what is culture? Is it the environment we do work in? Is it how people manage the environment we do work in? Or is it the psychology of the organization? Is it all three of those things? Is it more than that? Is it less than that? We don't have a consistent interpretation of what a culture is. And so we interpret it differently based on our education and our histories. So that's one reason I don't think we need that auditors don't make very good culture audits. And so that's one thing. The other thing is you can get to culture by doing what we do really well and what we excel at, which is looking at process and how we manage controls, how we design and implement controls affects culture. Therefore, we can look at that and we can have an impact on culture. The other reason I don't like culture audits is because we are not organizational psychologists. I never had one on my staff. And if you don't know psychology of organizations, we lose credibility talking to a board of directors saying, hey, you know, your culture kind of sucks. Uh, here's the reasons why. Oh, really? What, what makes you say that? And why can you say that? Well, I'm an auditor, so I can say it. Yeah. It doesn't do well. And so it runs the risk of impacting our credibility when our credibility is so important to us. I've always believed that we audit what we can audit and we find expertise to help us audit that which we do not know. But when we can't find that expertise, we shouldn't jump on the bandwagon just to do something. Now, culture, which is an interesting comment, with Wells Fargo, that's what the senators mentioned in their inquiries. And more than one senator mentioned it, said, well, what is the culture at your organization? And well, we trust our, we like our customers, we're customer friendly, we have independent, they, they go through all these excuses Listening to their answers to the culture question, I'm not sure that a lot of CEOs understand what the culture is within their organization either. And I'll yeah, give no you a really good, quick example of that, if you don't mind. I was, I was talking to, a, uh, I was having lunch with the president of a bank and we were talking about culture. And he says, you know, I'm really worried that we're going to lose our culture because we're hiring all these people who are bringing new ideas and new thoughts and they come from different cultures. So our culture is changing. And I looked at him and I said, I don't think, Bill, that you actually don't know that every time one of your people goes to a training class and brings something home, your culture changes a bit. Every time they go to uh, some event, the conference, and they bring something back, your culture changes a bit. Maybe instead of focusing on the culture you used to have, we focus on how do we help ensure that the culture we want to have is the one that is important to us. And how do we assimilate all these great ideas and all of these wonderful experiences that people are bringing to us to help better our culture rather than believe that the culture we used to have is still valid? So there's just a lot of stuff around culture. I don't believe that typically auditors are good at auditing culture for the reasons I mentioned. So I'm not a big fan of that from an audit perspective. I am from a management perspective, and I am from a control process-oriented reporting and impact how that impacts culture i hope that answers the question yeah if if we're saying that culture is almost the root cause of this and maybe it goes a little deeper than that of these issues that we're seeing and we have to have some kind of role in that so what what would be your almost recommendation of okay maybe internal audit in your opinion shouldn't be doing that but who should be doing it like hey there's a need we we have to do this we'll call it a culture audit how would you go about either outsourcing that effectively? Like who would you bring in? What what types of roles would you bring in? 
I'm almost, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about um, a lesson from your book, uh, Dare to Be Different, where you talk about the relationships where you had like a relationship with a waitress or not that kind of relationship. I probably said that wrong, but a mechanic, <laughs> but like different folks, different folks um, with different backgrounds so you could get their perspective around that. So like, who would you bring in and go, okay, go do the culture audit. Give us, you know, an understanding of what the culture is around here because we believe that is an issue or a potential issue? You know, it's a, that's a great question, Trent. And, and the first thing I would do is I would sit down with management and I and the board and I would confirm what our definition of culture is. If we're going to do a culture audit, I, I, have to, I have to get on board and bring them on board and say, this is what we're going to look at and this is how we are defining culture. Once we've defined it, that will indicate to me exactly who on my, my, my council, my personal council, uh, and that's where the waitress comes in for those of you who are listening. And we do, I do have a relationship with the waitress, but it's a, because waitresses manage processes really well. And so they give me perspective differently or waiters. They give us a perspective like a mechanic does on how to find problems. They do a really, really good job. But anyway, when we're talking about culture, once I've understood and we all agree that this is what culture is, and if we say, well, it's the psychology of the organization and it's a method of, it's a combination of X, Y, and Z, then I will find the expertise of X, Y, and Z to educate us in helping design an audit program, number one, that we can audit what needs to be audited to be able to communicate something. And then I would hire someone like Tracy or I'd get someone like Tracy on from my board that would then help us communicate that message. Because the last thing you want to do is go to a, a board of director meeting and say, we did a culture audit. And by the way, your culture is not very good. Because yeah. the board and senior management believes their culture is very good. And it's a hard message to send when all of the financial indicators are that your organization is doing a great job. Your culture can still be bad, but your organization is doing a good job. And I would, I, would, I would push back to everyone out there. If you really want to do a culture audit, who of us is going to stand up and say, what the real battle is when we talk about culture, because there is a battle to be drawn. There are battle lines to be drawn. And the battle is, is our organization culture geared to short-term earnings per share, or is it uh, geared to long-term sustainability? That's the battle. And that's where strategic decisions are made. Do I make my money today? Or are I looking five years from now? Am I still going to be around making money or I'm going to make my money today because I know I'll probably still be here. That's the battle. And that's a, really a culture issue more than anything, more than strategic. It's a culture issue. And when we start talking about that, I'm not sure that there's a lot of us in audit. And I raise my hand. I'm not sure I'm educated enough to have that argument with the board and CEOs that, you know, your earnings per share focus. That's total crap. It doesn't do you good. What does you good is to think that, you know, ESG is important, sustainability is important. You want to be making money five years from now. You don't just want to make an extra three cents per share this quarter. And if you look at a number of issues, particularly in um, GE, when their G capital demise and they found all these accounting issues, earning per share, droving. <laughs> and, you, and you start thinking about, okay, not once have any of us seen somebody raise their hand and go to a board and say, you know, our earnings per share is driving some bad behavior in the bank. We never say that, but you have to have the courage to say if that's what it is. And that's I, just my humble opinion. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you, I think you're right about having the courage. I think management absolutely should be involved. And we have, you know, Hal has lots of experience with culture audits. He works with the chief human Re- relations officer. And of course, there's some of the big firms out there that that um, have some guidance on on culture audits too. But I do I do think that it's something that we, if we aren't directly doing it or responsible for it, we should at least have our spidey senses, our antennas out and looking mm-hmm. for these things and asking a few of those questions that you mentioned, right? Um, so. The other thing that's so, interesting, when yeah. you talk about it, the culture, and, and I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, maybe we ought to get Hal on here one day and have him talk about that because he has a lot of experience around <laughs> he does. that. Um, you know, in banking, you have centralized, and de- or in any organization, you have centralized and decentralized management. That's a culture issue, okay? We can sort of bring that to culture. What I found is the auditors have a preference. It's not it has nothing to do with culture. It's a preference, and it's a control preference. Can you control better decentralized? Can you control better centralized? Really a good debate. I've worked in companies that have done credit both ways. Decentralized credit decisions, centralized credit decisions. Right. It's a culture issue. How do you address that as an auditor? How do you criticize a process from a culture perspective? There's other ways to criticize that example from a process and control perspective that gets to the culture that does not negatively impact my credibility. When I do culture, I run a risk of impacting my credibility as an auditor. And I tend to be a, a moralist in life, but I'm not a moralist in my audit work. I'm a practical person in my audit work. Morality is for someone else to talk about. <laughs> All right. There you Let's- go. As we start to wrap up, um, we mentioned- oh, but There's so much to talk I know. about. I know. I know. I know. It's crazy. Um, but as we do, so we mentioned the book earlier. Are there a few, uh, maybe three takeaways or, or some of the biggest takeaways that you could leave us with for those that haven't read it yet? I, I think there's really, you know, I, I could go through and there's, there's chapters and there's keys to success for auditors. The book was designed to help auditors individually determine how they can be better and excel at what they do. And I, I did that on purpose because I, I firmly believe that every single auditor has value and every single auditor has a uniqueness that if they allow that value to come out, if they to start having confidence in themselves, if they start looking at things and doing what they do well, they can excel. But to excel, we need to do what other people don't do. And that's a problem. I, I've been that way since I was a kid. I've always rebelled against authority, if you will. Love the fact that we have the IIA and we have the chartered uh, CPAs and we have all these associations that provide guidance and, and uh, education and all of that stuff. I encourage auditors to take advantage of all of that education. There's a lot of good education. There's some brilliant people out there but do it your way. And that's what the book is all about. Do it differently. What people teach you is typically the most common accepted way to do things. Remember as auditors that there was a long period of time that the world was flat until somebody did it their way. Audit is the same thing. We have to do it our way. Be creative find new ways to analyze, find new ways to communicate, find new ways to look at things. How do we observe? There's a lot of things we can do differently based on a very solid foundation of the education that we have. 
And that's what my book is all about, taking that education from the IIA, from things like this podcast, from schools and colleges, making it, like they say on an American Idol, you make it your own. <laughs> you know, you take the song and you make it your own. Do the same thing because I have found that the younger generation of auditors are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and they have some great ideas. Don't hide your ideas. And that's what the book tells you is how you can do it within the guidelines of being an auditor and confirming and upholding all of the standards that we live to. All right. As we start to wrap up, Tracy, I'll throw it to you if you have closing remarks and then Dan to yeah. you similarly. And if you want to tell a story of rebellion, that might be uh, one way to, to close the show up, but I'll leave it up to you. Tracy? Yeah, I just wanted to um, thank Dan. I'm on mute. Um, thank you, Dan, and thank you to the audience for being here. Um, I don't think I've ever heard being an auditor compared to being a contestant on American Idol before. So that would be a, <laughs> perhaps a first for the profession. Um, but thank you very much. And uh, as of, co of course, this will be published on our podcast on the next couple of weeks. And Dan, I'll give you the last word to tell us a story. Uh, thank you. I, I don't really have a rebellious story that I could talk to anybody about. It would embarrass me, but I will tell you one little thing. Uh, first of all, my, my definition of rebellion is questioning authority, questioning why things are done the way they are. That's the thing that I, I question. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing. We were, I was 16 years old driving down a street with my parents in a car. Uh, we're uh, up ahead of us. There were two hippies and hippies at the time were people with long hair, backpacks, walking the street with bell, uh, bell bottom jeans, etc. And it's not a derogatory term at all. I absolutely, I actually love the hippie, uh, hippie period of our history. There was a car in front of us, and they threw and and the car as they drove past these two people on the side of the street took a beer can and threw it at them. And my dad made a comment. He said, "You know that's a shame, but you know if they didn't have long hair and they were a little bit cleaner, uh, that probably wouldn't have happened." And I asked him, I said, why are you blaming the victims versus the, I didn't use the word victim. I said, why are you blaming the, the hippies instead of the person who threw the can? And my dad didn't have an answer. And my dad was military. So obviously his, his answer is don't ask that question. I learned a very early stage. You can have problems asking questions, but ask the question because it's not right to throw cans at hippies. Okay. It's just not right. There's a lot of things we do in life that's not right, and audit has an obligation, in my humble opinion, to point out where we are not doing things right in organizations and helping management get there to do it better. Mm -hmm.